Many of you are probably familiar with the 11th chapter of Luke, where the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray. Uh, Growing up as a young boy in the Beamsville Church of Christ in Beamsville, Ontario, that was a question that I was always asking, but I never asked. Have you ever had questions like that? You're watching and you're observing and you're learning. How is it that we are to pray? And I want to share with you the two things that I learned as a young boy as a part of that process in terms of learning to pray. The first thing that I learned... All right, Bruce, I believe you. Yeah. The first thing that I learned was that prayer does not require training. I was taught that it was innate and it was natural. It was sitting on those pews that, uh, I don't know if this is a Church of Christ official color, but there's a picture of my uh, church building growing up, exact same color pews, facing southward, that I would look up on the stage and I would watch the preacher preach. And I remember this story about prayer, and the fact that I remember it shows how formative it was for me as a young man. The preacher was talking about somebody who had recently been baptized, and, and that young man was asked to say a prayer. And he resisted, and he pushed against the idea, and finally he agreed, and he asked the preacher, he said, well, teach me how to pray. And the preacher said, you just, you just say whatever's on your heart. Just, just communicate to God as if you're having a conversation. And so that young man in front of the church said, hello, God, this is Steve here. I just wanted to thank you for letting me talk to you, and on and on he went. And the, the punchline of the story was that that was the best prayer that the preacher had ever heard in that congregation. And so it was me as a young boy learning about prayer who said, prayer does not require training, it must be innate and natural. And the second thing that I learned about prayer from that story and from other experiences is that prayer does not require tools. See, prayer for me, it seemed like it must be something that's different than everything else that I did as a human. When I went to math class, I was required to have a calculator that could do complex formulas. When I went to gym class, I was required to have non-marking running shoes. Whenever I went to chemistry, I was required to have safety glasses. And in everything that was happening around me, farming, cooking, learning, building, all of those required tools, but I was taught that prayer didn't require tools. In fact, I think I believed that the best prayers would those be those who prayed without the use of tools. And so the prayers that flow spontaneously, lasting however long they needed to, that came from the heart, those were the prayers that I were taught was the most significant. The big formal word from this, of course, is extemporaneous prayers. And I grew up in that tradition where that's how I was taught to pray. But what I learned about prayer affected how I prayed But if I was being more accurate and more honest with that statement, it reflected why I did not pray and why I felt guilty about it. My prayer life would look like this. I would sit down and I would say, Dear God. But then from there I would have no idea where I was to go next or what I was to say or what I was to do. And before I knew it, my mind was wandering here and there and everywhere. I'd eventually try again. Well, good morning, Lord. And yet still, I'd come up with pretty much nothing. 
to say or to do on that occasion. And so then I was resigned to feel guilty about the fact that everyone else around me seemed to be very excited about prayer. On a Sunday morning, a congregation would do just like what we did. They would sing the sweet hour of prayer, and I would sit there thinking, I'm the only one apparently who has not got prayer figured out because I can't pray for five minutes, let alone for an hour. And so prayer for me was shame-inducing, it was disorienting, and it was discouraging because I apparently had not learned how to pray properly in the way my tradition taught me. Today I pray much differently than I was taught. I pray in such a way that I assume that I need training in prayer. I pray in such a way that I believe tools are helpful and useful in prayer. I pray in such a way that there are good things to pray and there are not so good things to pray. I pray in such a way that my heart is not always the best guide for my prayers. That sometimes my heart may lead me astray and it needs a reference point in prayer. And so this morning I want to tell you how and why I use the Psalms as a primary tool and a primary trainer for prayer. My goal is not to devalue extemporaneous prayers. This is not an either-or sermon where you choose either guided prayers or extemporaneous prayers, but it is instead a both-and sermon where we continue to learn and practice both. In fact, I think that if we use the Psalms as a tool and a trainer for prayer, what will happen as a result is that our times of extemporaneous prayer will be more free-flowing and they will, in fact, be more life-giving for us. And so I'm going to put up the very front. Here's my aim for this sermon this morning. Is that I hope to convince you of the value of opening your Bible to the book of Psalms and praying them systematically, regularly, and faithfully across a lifetime. See, from the earliest days, the Psalms have functioned as a tool for prayer and are structured in a way to train people how to pray. See, if you look at the psalms as we've gone through them over the last several weeks, you'll notice that there's different forms or different types of psalms. There's the, the hymns and the poetry and the laments and the words of thanksgiving, and those all become types. But there is a larger type that encapsulates all of the psalms. If you were to look, for example, at Psalm chapter 72, verse 20, there's an editor's note that says that the prayers of David, son of Jesse, have ended. Now, if you go through those first 72 psalms and you try to figure out which ones are introduced as a prayer, you'll find Psalm 17 is the only one that has said, here's a prayer. And yet the way that this, these first two books of psalms are viewed, the best way to call them are prayers. So the psalmist introduced these as prayers. And these are to be prayers that can function and did function in an important way for early readers. And so part of the way that the psalms were edited was such that they could be used in prayer, both for individuals and corporately as the people of God came together. So what the Jews would do is they would compile the psalms into prayer books. The psalm we mentioned when we looked at 145 that you'll find most frequently in those prayer books is 145. And if you were in Babylon, according to the Talmud, you would be instructed three times a day to pray Psalm 145. So they would be used in synagogue gatherings, and when people were at home, they were to be used in set hours of prayer. I want to make a mention about the word hour in prayer. If you look at our, um, whatever you call this, order of worship, there's a word that appears very frequently in each of those songs. Did anybody see the repeated word? It's the word hour. 
Now, from our tradition, we might misunderstand what's being said by the word hour. The, the hours, also sometimes called the, the offices of prayer, were that there were set times when you would leave whatever it was that you were doing and you would have your time of prayer. It did not mean you would pray for an hour, but there were set hours in which one would pray. If you look at the dates of the authors who wrote these books, and I didn't have time to research it because I only thought of it as we were singing this morning, I think you'll find that these are people who come out of traditions that have set hours of prayer at 8 o'clock at 12 o'clock, at 5 o'clock, that those become the hours of prayer. So you see the difference here? We're not talking about praying for an hour, but hours that are pre-designated as prayer. And that clearly is what's happening in the Psalms themselves. Uh, the only debate is how often the hours of prayer were. Psalm 119, verse 164 says, Seven times a day I will praise you for your righteous ordinances. And so there were these set times where, where they would pray and gather. I'm reading a, a, a biography right now of uh, Martin Luther, and when he first joined the monastery, the first prayer hour began at 2 a.m. Wow, wouldn't you love to do that? And they would read for their morning prayers, they would read the Psalms as their prayers, and every 15 days, they read through the entire Psalms. And for four years, he was there in law school. 15 days, all of the Psalms over a four-year period. That's a pretty formative thing. And so some will say it was seven times a day, and others will say, no, it was three times a day. Psalm 55, verse 17 says, Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he will hear my voice. Of course, we're very familiar with Daniel, and Daniel tells us that he had these set times of prayer three times a day. How was it that they caught him praying so easily? Because everyone knew at what hour exactly where he would be. Others will say it's twice a day. In the psalm that we just read, you have Psalm 4-8 being the prayer for lying down when I sleep in your presence. And then Psalm 5, when one raises, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. That there are these rhythms and these patterns to prayer. And so during the time of the New Testament, we find that there would be an ongoing practice of these hours of prayer where the city bell would toll. And people would cease and either where they were or they would gather in a central location to pray. We find that being what happens in Acts 3.1, that Peter and John, after the resurrection, of course, are going to the temple at 3 o'clock at the hour of prayer. See, I think that one could easily make the case that it is this constant and frequent exposure to the Psalms is the reason why the Psalms are most often quoted in the New Testament. There was no other part of the Old Testament that the apostles would have been more familiar with than these psalms that were a part of their regular practices of prayer. And since they would often quote whatever they were writing, it seems sensible that they were very, very familiar with the psalms. We know, of course, that Jesus was also very familiar with the psalms and even incorporated them into his prayers. I mean, as, as a Jew, he would have kept these prayer hours, and those prayer content would have been the psalms. See, what we find in the gospel is there are a lot of reminders that Jesus prayed, but very few, especially in the synoptic gospels, that tell us exactly what or how he prayed. But in the cross, we do get some of the content of his prayers, and we find Psalm 22:1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A prayer that incorporates the Psalms. Or Psalm 31, 5, into your hands I commit my spirit. Certainly, Jesus himself did not have an issue using the Psalms as a tool in his very own prayer life. See, I want for us to think about that question that the disciples asked Jesus when they asked him to teach them to pray. 
And Jesus, in his response, he says, when you pray, and he gives his answer. Now, the thing that I have wrestled with for a lot of my life is why the way I was instructed to pray is not the same way that Jesus instructed his disciples to pray. Why was I taught that prayer is best when it comes out of the heart, when it is free-flowing, that it doesn't require any tools, and yet Jesus, when he teaches his disciples, what does he give them? He gives them tools to use as training for prayer. See, the, the point is not that Jesus clearly taught his disciples. He didn't point to a psalm and say, pray this psalm. I suspect because he knew they were already praying the psalm. But that Jesus does give them a tool for prayer, and he gives them resources for training to teach them in prayer. Jesus opts at least somewhere between a sample prayer or a structured prayer, and he says, here, these are the tools, and this is the kind of a training that you're going to need in prayer. So I find that the Psalms can be useful in helping to train me to pray. And I'm going to give you three reasons why I believe that this is a uh, a valuable way for us to learn to pray. And again, I'm going to remind you, here's what I want to convince you of this morning. Open your Bible to the book of Psalms and pray them systematically, regularly, and faithfully across a lifetime. So what would be the benefit of doing that? When praying the Psalms, you'll be given a starting point and a structure that can enrich your prayer life. I think of praying the Psalms for me like the lawnmower or like the snowblower. It has that little button that's a primer button, right? And you push it to get it started. For me, the Psalms function in that way that they give me structure and guidance as I reorient my heart and my mind in prayer. Sometimes just finding a way to get started is a really important part of prayer. That's where I would often get stuck. Beyond the dear God, I didn't know where to go from there. But the Psalms will give guidance and structure. Stephen King, talking about how he writes so creatively, he says, this is his morning routine. Every morning between 8 and 8.30, I sit down with a cup of water or a glass of tea. I take my vitamin pill play the same music, sit in the same seat, and have all the papers arranged in the same place. Now, if somebody told you that's what they did every morning, you might say, well, clearly you can't be creative if you start your day off in the exact same structured and rhythmed way. But King makes the case for his writing, it flows out of the structure. And I believe that the Psalms, in a very similar way, they provide us structure that's necessary to lead us into our time of prayer. I mean, if you imagine teaching kids to write poetry and they say, well, what should I write about? And you just say, whatever. The kids are going to spend most of their time doing this. This, 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 because the options are so limitless. But if you tell the kids to write a poem about tractors, they will more quickly begin moving into the process of writing the poem. And I believe that the same is true of prayer and the use of the Psalms. If I sit down to pray without any tools, I often don't know where to start. But if I begin praying out of a psalm, it will often give direction to my prayers. So here's an example, praying out of Psalm 20. When I get to verse 4, it says, May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Now, so in my prayer, I'm inviting God 
to, to do something with my longings and my desires. And so I'm going to want to ask myself, are my longings and desires what they ought to be? What if God did in fact give me the desires of my heart? Would that be a good thing or would that be a bad thing? And so it calls me to question and to reevaluate what God is doing in the midst of my heart and what my heart is longing for. And I may never have gotten there in my prayer unless I used the structure of a psalm to help guide me and lead me through that process of prayer. Or consider verse 7. Some take pride in chariots and some in horses, but our pride is in the name of the Lord our God. And when I pray this psalm, I get stuck on the word some. Some do that, and am I a part of that some? And there are occasions when you look at this wording that you might find that you have been a person, though you didn't trust in horses, you trusted in something other than trusting in God. And so by praying this psalm, it may uh, help you to take ownership for the decisions you've made. It may bring you into a time of confession. But the structure, again, of this psalm helps to bring us to a plate where we, place we might need to confess or reaffirm or realign something that's gone wrong in our lives or in our hearts. And so I think that the psalms are useful because they give us a starting point and a structure that can enrich our prayer lives. The second thing that I recognize is that in the Psalms, you'll no longer simply pray out of your heart, but you'll be invited to pray something new into your heart. Is your heart always a reliable guide for the kinds of things you need to be saying to God? Imagine being filled with fear, praise, anxiety, anger, love, sorrow, despair, gratitude, grief, doubt, suffering, vengeance, repentance... Are all of those emotions what you ought to be praying out of on that specific occasion? Or can the Psalms ever, in fact, offer a directive and a corrective to what may be amiss in your heart? See, the Psalms, by praying them, they can introduce something new into your heart. See, one of the things that's very interesting about the Psalms is they've clearly been edited. But in the editorial process, they didn't say, all right, here's the Psalms of Thanksgiving. When you're feeling thankful, read these Psalms. And, and here's the Psalms for when you're feeling bad, read these Psalms. They're not structured according to types of emotions. They're scattered all throughout the 150 Psalms. And I think that the point is, is that as we pray systematically and faithfully through the process, we will be introduced sometimes to emotions that connect to us and sometimes to emotions that we may need to be challenged with or confronted by. And so, out of Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, as I begin that prayer, I may not have felt any need for confession in my heart. I may have felt things were going just right, but as I hear David's prayer of confession, it causes me to look within my own heart and ask, is there something there that's unconfessed? And it becomes invitational to me confessing. Or look at Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, He is perfect. The promise of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in Him. And sometimes I may not be feeling trust in God, and I may not be feeling confidence in God, but by reading this psalm, it can insert confidence into my heart. And it can increase trust where it's not there. I think there is value not just in praying what's out of what's in your heart, but asking the Psalms to pray new things and new emotions into your heart. 
The third reason why I believe it's beneficial for us to pray the Psalms is that our Psalms will then learn to be oriented towards a larger community, not just towards your individual needs. When we talk about the Psalms, we often do so in a very individualistic and I think sometimes a selfish way. That these are our property that we own and that we use. Our, our Psalm 4 that we looked at this morning, or Psalm 66 that we looked at last week, has this word, Selah, S-E-L-A-H. And, and scholars will go back and forth about exactly what that means or it indicates, but everyone has agreed it means something for the community. It's calling them to collectively do something together. So this is not an individual prayer book, but it belongs to the community. And it uses these words to help give them structure. So Psalm 66, it is instructed to the leader, a song, a song. This again is intended to be for a community of people. But even if I don't pray the Psalms in the midst of a community of people, the Psalms can orient my heart towards the larger community. See, the Psalms can help me to love my neighbor. So consider if you're reading Psalm 69 verses 1 through 3. In a time when your life is going wonderful and your life is going great, you pray these words. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and with the floods they sweep over me. I am weary with my crying and my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Now I may not resonate with this psalm, but I bet if I think for at least a little bit about somebody else, I might find someone who this could be their prayer, that I could pray on their behalf. And so I did that this week with Psalm 69, and I thought of Josh and Joni Patrick, friends of ours from the grad school that Josh has been battling cancer for four years, and he died this last week. They have three young children, same age as our kids, this is Joni's prayer. And it may not resonate with how I'm feeling or what I'm going through, but I will pray it on her behalf because I am a part of a community of people and I have a responsibility, not just that I will bring to God my own wants and my own needs, but on behalf of the body that I can pray out of the Psalms because the Psalms speak not just to me, but they speak to the community of God's people. And so... This is the point where you take it or leave it. I believe there's value in taking the Psalms and praying through them systematically, regularly, and faithfully across a lifetime. Before I finish, I want to answer two brief questions associated with our prayer life. One that perhaps we ask and perhaps we don't ask very often, which is where and when. I believe that we won't pray the Psalms unless we're intentional about it. Robert Benson says, So many people say they want to meet God, but they refuse to set a time and a place to do so. Think, think, think about all of your relationships. Benton says we have calendars and reminder lists and structure. We put everything in those lists, but for whatever reason, when it comes to our spiritual lives, we don't use those tools to bring us into a time of prayer. So my invitation is perhaps a little different than usual, but it's very simple. By the end of this day, I encourage you to take a pen and a paper, or you can even use your smartphone if you want, and write down where and when you'll begin to pray a single psalm every day, systematically, faithfully, across a lifetime. 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There will be some folks in the back if you want somebody to pray with while we stand and sing this song together.